have your Bibles, turn with me to, to Revelation chapter 3. And in this morning, we are going to continue our study in the seven letters to the seven churches found in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. A revelation is a very easy book to find in the Bible. It's the last book. And, and so no one will have any trouble turning to Revelation chapter 3. Now, if you recall, just by way of review for those who were not with us last Sunday, we looked at the fifth letter written to the church of Sardis, which was found in Revelations chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And if you recall, by way of memory, in this message to the church of Sardis, the Lord Jesus took the time to commend the, the few faithful believers there in Sardis who had not defiled their garments, those who were staying true, those who were staying faithful to the Lord. The Lord took notice. He was aware of their faithfulness, and he took the time to give them a, a word of praise, a word of condemnation. However, as we continue to study the letter, the, the message, we saw how with the few exceptions of these faithful believers, the Lord brought a strong word of correction against this church. That This church, they had a problem, and this was the problem, that they were dead. They were a lifeless church. They had a name. They had a reputation. They were known for being alive, for being spiritual, for being faithful to the Lord. But the all-seeing, the all-knowing Lord of the church, Jesus, he's not fooled like men are fooled. And the Lord told them, hey, you got a reputation that, that you're alive, but in all actuality, you're dead. It's just religion. It's just a routine. You're just going through the motions outwardly, but inwardly, you're a grave. You're a tomb. You're dead. And, and we started talking about how as a believer, as a Christian, it's so easy to have a reputation that we're alive, but in all actuality, we're dead. It's so easy to fall in the trap of dead religion, of routine, that you know the words, you know the songs, you even know the verses, the scriptures, but there's no relationship with Christ. And we're spiritually dead, although we look alive. And, and that was the problem with the church of Sardis. And so the Lord, caring for them, loving, concerned for them, he gave them this exhortation. He gave them this advice, and, 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 and he told them, wake up. Wake up. Remember what you received. Remember what you heard. Wake up. In other words, the Lord told them, stop being dead. Stop being spiritually dead, but, but wake up and remember what you learned from the word. And, and so that's what we looked at last Sunday for our study. The letter 
to the church of Sardis. And so this morning we're going to continue working our way through these seven letters to the seven churches. And we're going to look at the letter to the church of Philadelphia. Philadelphia, it's found in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And so if you have your Bibles open, let's read Revelations 3, 7 through 13. And let's see what God wants to share with us this morning. Everyone with me, amen? No man, maybe man. Amen. (laughs) If I confused you a little bit, forgive me. (laughs) This is what it says. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one could shut it for you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. And to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God in the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new Name. Let's read verse 13 together. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you have an ear this morning? Amen. Then this is for you. So this morning, we're going to examine this message, examine this letter that was given to the church of Philadelphia by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 7, if you can look with me, the Lord begins his message as he does all the messages to the seven churches by declaring to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right. Now, if you recall in past studies, we've said that the term angel here in chapter 2 and 3, is most likely a reference to the pastor or the spiritual leader of the church. The, The word angel, it simply means messenger. That's what the term means. And and in the Bible, 
Most of the times, it's used to describe a heavenly messenger. But every once in a while, we see that it's used to describe a human messenger. And and that seems to be the case here in the seven letters to the seven churches. Now, the city of Philadelphia, the city that this letter was addressed to, it was located about 25 miles southeast of Sardis, of, of the church that we looked at last week. Now, just to, to give you a, a little background of the city and of the name of the city, it was founded in 150 B.C. by one of the kings of the nation of Pergamum. The, the king's name was Attilus Philadelphos II. Now, I, I thought this was interesting, and I just wanted to mention it to you for your own benefit and probably for your, your own curiosity. This king who founded the city, he was known for his great love, his great dedication, and his great commitment to his brother. Now, that, that's what this king was known for, that he just loved He just was committed. He just cared so much for his brother. Now, the reason why I mentioned that to you is because the name Philadelphia, it literally means brotherly love. And so the king that founded this city, he loved and appreciated and was committed to his brother so much that he kind of named the city after his love for his brother. And even some historians and scholars tell us that the American city, Philadelphia, was actually named after this city by our forefathers. And so I thought that was a very interesting fact to know about this city. Now, during the time that this letter, this message was written, historians tell us that the city of Philadelphia was a very corrupt, a very immoral, a very wicked city. It had so many temples dedicated to false gods that it actually had the nickname Little Athens because in Athens, there in Greece, at the time that this letter was written, it's estimated that the city had 3,000 temples dedicated to false gods located within it. And so Philadelphia kind of followed in the ways of Athens, and they were completely given over to idols. But in the midst of all the corruption, in the midst of all the evil, in the midst of all the idolatry, there was a faithful group of believers, the church, who were bearing witness of Jesus Christ, and the Lord remembered them, the Lord was concerned for them, and the Lord wrote this sixth message to them. And this morning, I want to consider this message with you, and I want to share with you guys four things that we learn, four things that we see in the letter to the church of 
Philadelphia. And so let's begin. Many of you were given a little outline at the front. You're going to be able to follow with me. And, and let's look at four things concerning the letter to the church of Philadelphia. Just before we begin, I want to say this on the side. The church of Philadelphia, they were not given a word of correction by the Lord. The Lord never gave them a word of correction and a word of condemnation. So they were what we call the faithful church. They were the church that we as believers, we want to imitate and we want to follow their example. As we're going to see next week, as we finish these seven letters, we're going to learn about the church of Laodicea and the church of Laodicea. They were not given any words of praise by the Lord, but they were only given words of correction. And so we don't want to be like Laodicea, but we want to be like the church of Philadelphia. Amen. Wouldn't it be sad for the Lord to have nothing good to say about us? I don't want that. I don't know about you, but I want the Lord to be pleased with my life. And I want to live worthy of the gospel. And Philadelphia gives us some hints, some principles that we can apply that will help us to be faithful to the Lord. And so let's begin. And we're going to look at four things. And the first thing we want to see is found in verse 7. Look with me in verse 7, and we want to look at the description of Christ. The Lord begins this message, Jesus, by describing himself in three ways to the church of Philadelphia. Let's look at them together. First, the Lord describes himself as he who is holy, as he who is holy. Jesus is absolutely holy, perfect, and blameless in every single way. Amen? Jesus is holy. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Bible teaches us that Jesus knew no sin. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was without sin. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, the Bible teaches us that Jesus committed no sin. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, the Bible teaches us in him there is no sin. Over and over and over, the Bible teaches us that Jesus, the Son of God, was sinless. He was holy. Now, the word holy, it's the Greek word hagias. And it simply means to be set apart or to be separated. And so when Jesus tells us that he is holy, what he is telling us is that he is set apart or he is separated from sin. He is the sinless one who gave his life 
for the sins of the world. You know, that's what's so beautiful about the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus, the sinless one, gave his life for the sinners. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, the religious leaders said to him, come down from there and save yourself if you are the Christ. But the truth is, Jesus is not the one who needed to be saved. He was sinless. He is sinless. It's us. It's you and me. We're the ones that are messed up. We're the ones that deserve the penalty of sin. And yet Jesus, as the sinless one, as the holy lamb of God, went to the cross on our behalf, and God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so the Holy Lamb of God gave his life for the sins of the world. And now because of what he has done, as we accept it, as we receive it by faith, now we are able to be holy and righteous in the sight of God. Not because practically we are yet. That, that's coming one day in heaven, but we're not there yet. We all still need some work. But positionally, we've been justified in God's sight through the lamb and through the blood of the lamb. Amen. And so Jesus first tells us that he is holy. Let's continue. And the second thing Jesus tells us is that he is true. Secondly, Jesus describes himself as he who is true. Now, the word true here used by Jesus, it's a very interesting word. There's two words he could have used in the Greek language. But the word that he chose to use, it speaks of being true and not fake. That's the whole idea behind it, that that Jesus saying, I am true and I'm not fake. In other words, the Lord wants us to understand that he is the true. He is the genuine. He is the authentic, real God. Amen. You don't seem too excited about that. Do you know that the world is filled with false gods? Did you know that? Did you know that the world is filled with false Christs, false Jesuses? And and, and in contrast to all of that, Jesus is saying, I'm the true. I'm the living God. I'm the real Christ. I'm the true Christ, because in this world, there is a lot of false antichrists. Amen. You know, you, you got the millionaire Christ that's being preached today in the millionaire Christ. He, he wants to make you rich. That's a false Christ. You have the political Christ. The political Christ wants to take you to a higher position. That's a false Christ. You have the alternative lifestyle Christ, the Christ who is cool with you sinning. 
the Christ who will accept you in an immoral lifestyle. The, the, the Christ who is cool with you being a homosexual and, and whatnot. That's a false Christ. You got the, the secular Christ being taught, being preached. The Christ who is tolerant and liberal. The Christ who says, well, you know, believe whatever you want to believe. And you'll make it into heaven's gate at the end of the day. That's a false Christ. You got what I like to call the archangel Christ. That simply means the Christ who is less than God. The Christ who maybe was the son of God, but he is not fully God. His nature is not equal with God. That is a false Christ. And throughout history of the church and throughout America in the world presently, there's hundreds and hundreds and millions, you might say, false gods and false crises being taught. And in spite of all that and in the midst of all that, the Lord Jesus of the scripture tells you and tells me, I am the true Christ. I am the real Christ. I am the genuine Christ. And we need to be so careful that we're not falling uh, a cheap imitation, but we need to make sure we're serving and following the Christ of the scriptures. Amen. Listen to this. We need to make sure we're following the Christ who is fully God and fully man. Amen. We need to make sure we're following the Christ who was born from a virgin. The Christ who died for the sins of the world on Calvary, the cross. The Christ who rose from the dead on the third day. The Christ who was presently seated at the right hand of God Almighty. The Christ who commands all men everywhere to repent from their sin and to turn to him alone for salvation and forgiveness of sins. The Christ who one day will return to the earth in great glory and great power. He's going to judge mankind and he's going to establish his kingdom upon the earth. That's the Christ of the scripture. That's the Christ that leads to life. And we need to make sure we're following the real Christ, the true Christ, the Christ who alone can offer, can give forgiveness of sins, salvation and eternal life. Listen to this family. If the world don't hate him, it's not the true Christ. The world don't hate him. If if the world's trying to date him, you know, you got all these secular artists making songs about Christ and you go all these secular places and, and they're saying Jesus is my homeboy and whatnot. Well, if the world don't hate him, it's not the true Christ. If the world wants to date him, you need to make sure that they're following with the word because the Christ of the scriptures tells us that the world was going to hate him. And he even told us that the world is going to hate us. And so the Lord tells us that he is true. 
that he is the true and living God, the creator of the heavens and the earth and the seas, and only in him is found salvation. Amen. Man, in the midst of lies, in the midst of confusion, I find so much comfort that in Christ, I have the truth. And in Christ, I am serving the true and living God. Amen. Praise God that when we give our life to Jesus, he removes the blinders and the truth sets us free. And this morning, man, we're free in Christ. And that, my friends, is priceless. Amen. So Jesus described himself first as he who is holy and as he who is true. Now, thirdly, Jesus describes himself, and this is an interesting one. Let's look with it together. Verse 7, as he who has the key of David. Jesus describes himself as he who has the key of David. Now, let me share with you what exactly that means. What is the Lord trying to teach us? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 22, verse 22, you don't have to look, turn there, but just for your own reference, we're told the story of a man by the name of Alokim who was given the key of David by God. Now, this key symbolized, the key of David, it symbolized that this man, Elohim, was given authority, was given power within the kingdom of Judah, within the kingdom of Israel. So it simply meant that with this key, this man, Elohim, he had access to the palaces, to the treasures, that there was authority, there was power given to him by him receiving the key of David. And so when Jesus tells us that he has the key of David, this is what Jesus is telling us. Pay attention. He's telling us that he has absolute authority and he has absolute power over everything. Amen. In Matthew 28, verse 18, the Lord says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In Psalms 115, verse 3, we read, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. And so here, the the third description in, in Revelations 3, 7 The Lord is telling us that he is sovereign. Jesus is telling us that he's in complete control, that he's in control of everything, that he has the power, that he has the authority in heaven and on earth. And because of that, he's able to open up doors that need to be opened, and he's able to Close doors that need to be closed. He's sovereign. He is in control. And this morning, as followers of Christ, this is what we need to do. And and, and please don't miss this. Rest 
in the sovereignty of God. What do I mean by that? Simply this. Rest in the fact that Jesus, your Lord, your Savior, is in complete control. That he's sovereign. And he knows what he's doing. So just trust him. Because oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we're worrying, we're stressing, we're anxious, we're just like bugging out. You know, no, what, what, if I get this job or if I don't or this sickness is not going away or it is or what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? How am I going to do this? And the Lord just says, man, take it easy. I'm in control. Rest in my sovereignty. Rest in the fact that your Savior, your Lord, is in control of everything. And if the Lord wants to open a door, he's going to open a door. And if the Lord wants to close a door, he's going to close a door. And all we have to do is rest in him, seek his direction, seek his guidance, and just submit to the decision that he wants to make. Amen. You know, I love thinking of the sovereignty of Christ because within the church today, it's kind of like turned around. And a lot of believers, a lot of people have the attitude, well, I'm in control and I'm the one that tells God what to do. But but that's not the real Christ. All right. Like we were talking about that ain't the Christ of the scriptures because the Christ of the scriptures, he's in control and he tells us what to do. And when I think about that, I say, praise God, because 99.9% of the time, I don't know what to do. Amen. I'm lost. I'm confused. I, I don't know what's going on. I don't even know how to make things happen. But to know that Jesus does. And that Jesus wants to direct me, wants to guide me, that he wants to help me. Man, that is a blessing that the world can offer. Amen. Man, forget the government. You know, it's all about Jesus, you know. Amen. How many could say amen? No, no, don't misunderstand me, all right? I'm not saying, like, rebel against the government and go march on Washington. All I'm saying is at the end of the day, Obama's not in control, but King Jesus is. And we rest in that. Amen. Amen. Yeah, we're going to have to edit that. Edit that out. You know, like, oh, March. You know, no, I'm not saying that. You know, be upset at sin. Don't be upset with the government. You know, that's another topic. So the first thing we see is the description of Christ. Let's look now at the second thing, the commendation of Christ. The Lord takes the time to give three words of commendation to this church. He, he praises the church. He tells them they're doing a good job in three areas for three things. And, and I want to look at them with you. First, in verse 8, the Lord commends them or he praises them for their strength. Read with me verse Eight, the Lord says, I know your work. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it for you have a little strength. 
And so first, the Lord commends them for their strength. Now, when the Lord tells this church that they have a little strength, I personally believe, and, and, and I think many agree with me, that the Lord was not putting them down. The Lord wasn't like making fun of them like, ha ha, you guys are weak. You got a little strength, ha ha. You know, the Lord was not doing that, but rather the Lord was praising them. The Lord was commending them. And let me explain. Outwardly, the church, man, they, they, they looked like they were weak. They looked like they didn't have much strength. But as we're going to see inwardly, they had great strength. And so when the Lord tells them you have a little strength, really what the Lord is telling them, that he's proud of them because they weren't depending and relying on their own strength, but they were depending and relying on God's strength. And because of that, they were spiritual giants. Because of that, they were what we call the faithful church. You know, in 2 Corinthians chapter, nine, chapter 12, excuse me, verse 9, we are told that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. That God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so when we're weak, Physically or in human standards, in all actuality, it's a good thing. It's a blessing because it's through our weakness that God's strength is perfected. And when we're weak, he is strong. And when we're weak, when we're lacking ability, talent, qualification, it's good because it teaches us to depend and rely on God. And so it's, it's as if you're living your life, you're doing your responsibility, not with your strength, but with the strength of God. And we need to depend. We need to rely on God's strength. It, you know, the question, you know, that, that we got to ask ourselves constantly is whose strength are you depending upon? Whose power Whose ability are you depending upon? You know, so often, sadly, we make the mistake and, and we depend on our own strength. You know, that there's a struggle, there's a problem, there's something that needs to get done. Let's say within the family or at work or here at church. And right away, there we are trying to get it done by ourselves. And we don't even pause to take the time to pray. And to say, Lord, help me. Lord, I don't know what to do. Lord, I can't do this. Lord, I'm, I'm incapable. Lord, I don't, I don't know what to do. Lord, give me the strength. Give me the wisdom. Help me, Lord. That's where we need to be at. We need to draw our strength from God. Amen. We need to come to the point that every day, we depend, we rely on the strength of God because that's the only way we're going to get through the day. <laughs> that's the only way 
that we're going to make it. You know, I've tried to do it on my own strength before I came to Christ, and I got nowhere. You know, I remember clearly, you know, because before I came to Christ, I was involved with a lot of dumb stuff, with, with what we like to call sin. You know, I was, I was a sinner. I hated it, as all of you know, if you've practiced sin, if you've done drugs, if you drank alcohol, you hate it. It's empty living. And I remember I would wake up every day before I came to Christ, and I would say, okay, this is it. I'm quitting. You know, and I remember I would give my drugs away, and I'd give my instruments to smoke the drugs away. You know, I would, like, throw away my lighters and, and whatnot and turn off my phone for my friends won't call me. And I would say, I'm going cold turkey. I'm changing. This is the day of my new life, you know. And you'll never guess what would happen that night. I would find my drugs, find the lighter, and turn my phone back on. I didn't have the strength. I didn't have the power. I didn't have the ability to change. But something happened in 2003 of of the month of August. I gave my life to Christ. I accepted him as my Lord and Savior. And for the first time in my life, I was given the strength to throw away the drugs, to turn off the phone, to cut relationships, to throw away lighters and whatnot. And I was given the strength and the power to repent from sin and to walk a life worthy of the gospel. Was it because I was strong? Was it because I read a a self-help book or went to rehab? No. It was simply because I accepted the Son of God in my life. And he filled me with his spirit, and it's been seven years, and I haven't touched anything. Amen? Now, now, don't, 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 don't misunderstand me. I still got a lot of floss, you know? You know, the, the Lord can save from drugs, but it's the pride that I'm worried about now, you know? It's spiritual laziness. It's the character, but the same true and living God who freed me and saved me from drugs, from alcohol, from immoral lifestyle, that same God is going to free me from the character issues that I struggle with. But I do it on his strength, not on my strength. Amen? That is the secret. Learn to depend on the strength of God. Let's continue. The second thing the Lord commended them for was for their obedience. If you continue to read verse 8, after the Lord says that they have a little strength, he tells them that they have kept my word, that they have kept his word. And so the church in Philadelphia, they were faithful in obeying the word of God. They were what you would say, doers of the word and not simply hearers. Of the word, they were obedient in the scriptures to the word of God. And the Lord took notice and the Lord commended them for it. In James chapter 1, verse 22, the Bible says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. In John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, if you love me, let's take a little survey. How many this morning love the Lord? Amen. Amen. Okay, some are like, I love him, but I just don't want to raise my hand. The Lord knows the heart, okay? This is for you. If you love me, keep my commandments. Amen. That's for you, family. You love Jesus. Praise God. Keep loving him. But if you love him, you're going to obey him. It's not going to be love in words, and, but it's going to be love demonstrated through actions. And so this church, they were obedient to the word of God. They kept the word. And the Lord took notice and the Lord commanded us. The Lord said, good job. Good job for keeping my word. You know, as Christians, man, we're expected to obey God's word. You know, there's no thinking about it. You're expected to obey whether you like it or not. The scriptures are the instruction manual to life. They're the guide and we need to obey them. And I always say it and I will always say it. That blessings come from obedience, but disaster comes from disobedience. You're not going to regret obeying the word of God, but you will regret disobeying the word of God. And and I would just say this, the world, they can laugh all they want at us, but we need to continue faithfully studying meditating and obeying the word of God. Because at the end of the day, we are going to have the last laugh. There will not be any regret. You know, whenever I think about seeing Jesus face to face in heaven, you know, I know that there's going to be many things going on in my mind. What am I going to feel? What am I going to think? What am I going to say? Only the Lord knows. I can only imagine. But I know one of the things that I would like to say, you know, I'm hoping if I remember in glory is I knew the Bible was true. You know, like when you see Jesus, they're like, yes, I knew it was true. You know, because so many people want to bring doubt. And and there's a lot of evidences that the Bible is the inspired word of God. But but when we see God's plan, God's program unfolding and he revealed everything in the scriptures, It's just going to be like a big yes going on inside. The scriptures are the truth. And we need to obey and follow them. Amen. God loves us so much. He gave us a book. He gave us his son. Don't misunderstand me. But he also gave us a book to teach us about his son. And what do we do with that book? It's up to us. And I would just encourage you, take the word serious. Because when you stand before God, there's not going to be no excuse. Because God's going to say, I gave you a book in a language that you understood. But you just blowed it off. We, We need to take the word serious like the church in Philadelphia. Let's look at the third thing 
that the Lord commended them for. First, the Lord commended them for their strength, their obedience, and thirdly, their devotion. Look at verse 8 with me also. The Lord says to them, you have little strength, you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. And so the third thing the Lord praises them for is their devotion in the midst of immorality and idolatry. The church of Philadelphia, they were loyal. They were devoted to Jesus Christ. And if you look with me once again, notice that their devotion was not to a religion, that their devotion was not to a movement, that their devotion was not to a spiritual leader or a denomination, but their devotion was to a person, Jesus. The Lord says, you have not denied my name. It was a personal devotion. The church in Philadelphia, they were first and foremost committed to Christ. And because they were committed to Christ, they were committed to their church. They were committed to their community. They were committed to their families. But first and foremost, it was a commitment to Christ, a devotion to the Son of God. And I would just say this, as you continue to grow in your Christian faith, here is some advice. Never take your eyes off Jesus. And don't never make the mistake of putting them on something or someone else. Stay devoted to Christ. Stay committed to Christ. Stay focused on the Savior. It's all about Him. It's all about Jesus. I did not die for you. So you're not devoted to me. You're devoted to Christ. He was the lamb slain for you and for me. The church didn't die for you. The church can't offer you forgiveness. A denomination, a movement, they can do nothing for you concerning forgiveness, concerning salvation. Only Jesus only the Savior. And so our eyes must always be on Christ. And if you're always focused on Christ, if you're committed to Jesus first, you're going to be committed to your church. You're going to be committed to your pastor, to your leaders, to your family, at work, to your children. You will be committed to them if you're committed to Christ. But don't ever get it mixed up. And put your focus on something before Christ. Because if you do, you're heading down a slippery road. You're destined to to crash. You're destined to sink and drown like Peter. Peter was on a boat with the disciples. And the Lord was walking towards him on water. Trip out, you know. And Peter said, Lord, if that's you, you know, call me. Let me walk on water, Lord. And the Lord said, yeah, come on down, Peter. Don't even trip. I got you, you know. So Peter gets off the boat. He starts walking on water. What would that feel like? Uh, I don't even know. Probably like walking on jello, maybe. 
I don't know, you know. But he starts walking on water. And everything's good as he's looking, as he's fixed on Jesus. But the scripture teaches that, that eventually, over time, he began to look at the waves. He began to say, man, look at these big waves. Look at this terrible storm. And right when he got his eyes off Jesus, he began to sink. And that's what happens to us. When we're, walk, when we're just fixed, we're just focused on the Lord, man, we're walking on water spiritually, you know. But once we get our eyes off Jesus, that's when we start to drown. And we need to be devoted. We need to stay committed. We need to be centered and obsessed with Jesus. Amen. That's what we're going to teach you at Templo Victoria. We're going to teach you Christ crucified, resurrected, ascended at the right hand of God the Father. That's what we preach. That's what we teach here at Templo Victoria. Man, I'm not going to save you. I can't even help you. But I can point you to someone who can. And his name is Jesus. Amen? Amen. And so the second thing we see is the commendation by Christ. We're almost finished. Let's look at the third thing. The third thing is the word of exhortation by Christ. After describing himself, after commending the church, the Lord exhorts the church, and it's found in verse 11. He gives them one exhortation. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. What an exhortation. The Lord just gives them one. The Lord says, man, you're you're living in a bad environment. You're being tempted, you have struggles, you have battles, but hold fast. Hold on to your faith. Don't let go. Don't give in. Don't give up, but hold fast. The Lord was encouraging them. Hey, I'm coming back. I'm coming quickly. My reward is coming with me. Don't give up. Stay faithful, stay committed, stay devoted to me, and don't lose or don't miss out on your heavenly reward. Now, listen to this. In the book of Revelation, if you've ever taken the time to study it or read it, you would find out that on four separate occasions, Jesus tells us personally that he's coming quickly. In Revelations 3.10, we just read it. The Lord says, behold, I am coming quickly. In Revelations 22.7, the Lord says, behold, I am coming quickly. Revelations 22.12, the Lord says, behold, I am coming quickly. In Revelations 22.20, the Lord says, surely I am coming quickly. And so on four separate occasions, Jesus personally tells us that he is coming quickly. And if we read that, if we hear that, and if we're not making preparations for the return of Christ, then we are fools. Now that's a strong word. And I was like, Lord, should I really say that? And the Lord told me, you should. Say that to yourself first, Adam, but also tell the the saints, the family. If we're not 
thinking, if we're not preparing for the return of Christ, when he's told us on four separate occasions that he's coming quickly, then we are fools. Let me ask you this question. Was Jesus lying? So why do we live as though he was lying? You know what I mean? Because, you know, all of us right away, we're like, no, Jesus wasn't lying. He is coming. But you forgot. He said he's coming quickly. You know, when does when is that? I don't know. But but I think the Lord wanted us to live as though he was coming at this very moment. He's coming quickly. The Lord is returning and he exhorts us. Hold fast. Stay faithful, stay focused, stay committed, and don't let anyone take your crown. Make preparations for eternity. Now's the time to prepare. Now's the time to get ready for when we stand before Jesus. Because on that day, I don't know about you, But I don't want to have any regrets. I don't want to say to myself, I I could have done more. I could have read. I could have studied. I could have shared. I could have gave more. I don't want to have no regrets. And I don't want you to have any regrets. And so now's the time to prepare for the judgment seat of Christ. And the Lord exhorts us. The Lord tells us, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast, stay faithful, and don't let anyone take away your crown. You know, there was a brother that said this, are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? Are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? I hope and pray they are. And that you won't have no regrets on that great day. And so the third thing we see is the exhortation by Christ. And we're going to finish with this. And I'm going to ask Jonah to, to come up. We're, we're finishing early. And, and let's look at this final point. It's found in verse 12. The promise by Christ. The Lord ends his message to the church with a promise to all those who overcome in verse 12. And according to, to 1 John 5, 5, Overcomers are all those who believe that Jesus is the son of God. Genuine believers are overcomers. And if you can look with me in verse 12, the Lord promises overcomers two things. And we're going to finish with this. First, the Lord promises overcomers to make them pillars in the temple of God. Look at what he says. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. And so first the Lord promises overcomers to make them pillars. Now, I know what you're thinking because I thought that the first time I read it. What does that mean? Does that mean that in heaven the Lord is going to transform us? into literal pillars? No, it doesn't. The Lord is not talking about pillars in a literal sense, but he's talking about it in a figurative sense. This is what the Lord is trying to communicate to us. A pillar 
It represents something strong, something stable, something permanent. And so this is what Jesus says, that as we give our lives to him, as we accept him as our personal savior and Lord, and as we overcome through him, he promises us a permanent position in God's presence. In other words, the Lord is saying, you will be with God permanently. You're not going to have to worry about going in or going out or getting kicked out or whether you're going to be received or not. In Christ, we are promised a permanent residency with God. There's not gonna, we're not going to have to worry about a, an immigration to come deport us. Be like, hey, um, I talked to Michael, the archangel. You're not on the list. No. In Christ, a permanent position will always be with God. You know, what a day that will be. You know, you can even look at it this way. In Christ, through Christ, we're given a, a permanent position with God. But if we choose to reject Christ, if we choose to ignore Christ, we're given a permanent position away from God. A permanent position separated from God. And it just makes all the difference what you do with Christ. Let's finish and look at this second thing. Jesus promises not only to make them pillars in the temple of God, but he promises to write three names upon overcomers. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. And so the Lord finishes his promise by promising to write three names on believers. He's going to write the name of his father, the name of the new Jerusalem, and the name of his new name on all those who overcome. And the whole idea behind having these names written upon us, it simply means that we're going to be the personal property of God. In other words, in ancient days, if you own something, a product, you would write your name on it. And that meant that it belonged to someone. That meant it belonged to you. The product identified as belonging to you with your name written upon it. And so Jesus is telling us that in heaven and for all of eternity, we're going to have the name of God and the name of him written upon us, simply speaking that forever we're going to belong to him. We're going to have our identification found in Christ. And I'll end with this. A, a beautiful thing about that is we don't have to wait until heaven but the Bible says that presently we already belong to Jesus. He's already written his name upon our hearts. He's already bought us with his precious blood. 
and we belong to him. Our identity is found in him. It's not found in what we own or what we wear or how we look or how much we make, but our identity is found in Jesus Christ. And the Lord tells you and the Lord tells me that in him we are kings, we are priests, we are special, we are important, we are valuable. And that's who we are in Christ. And no one or nothing can take that away from us. We're children of God because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And I would just encourage you and end by saying this. This week, live as children of God. This week, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Whether you go back to school, as, as many of the students will, or go back to work, or go back to your families, or go on, on different activities, do everything for the glory of God. And remember what the Spirit told us this morning and what the Lord Jesus told us. Behold, I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have and don't let anyone take your crown. This week, hold fast to Jesus because he is all you need. Let's stand and let's dismiss in a word of prayer. Brother, could you, could you move this over there to the side? If you would raise your hands with me. Father, we, we love you and we thank you and we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you for the encouragement that your word has brought to us this morning. We want to thank you, Lord, that, that your word is living your word is powerful and your word is able to speak to the heart, to speak to the spirit and to really open our eyes to so many things that nothing else can. And then Lord, we pray and ask in your precious holy name that you would place within each of us the reality, the urgency that you are coming back. That, that you are coming quickly and we need to prepare ourselves. Lord, we, we can't ignore. We can't ignore the scriptures. We can't ignore the exhortations. We can't ignore the book of Revelation. But Lord, you're coming back. You're coming back for us. And Lord, on that day, we don't want to have any regrets, Lord. I don't want to think to myself, that I could have done more. I want to think to myself, I'm not ready, I'm not prepared to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and to give account of all that I did in the body as I was here on the earth. I don't want to have regrets. I don't want to have remorse, Lord. Now's the time. You've given us this time, Lord. You, you love us so much, Lord, that you've given us this time to prepare, to make ready when we stand before you. And I pray, Lord, that that, that would be 
imprinted in our hearts, Lord, that, that this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would, would just imprint in our hearts, in our minds, the reality that Jesus is coming quickly. And Lord, we need to be busy for your kingdom. We need to be consecrated, Lord. We need to be holy, for you are holy. And we need your grace. And this morning, Father, we pray and ask that you would give us the grace to serve you acceptably, that you would fill us with your spirit, and that you would help us, Lord. That you would give us the strength, Lord. Many of us, Lord, were, were like the church in Philadelphia, Lord. We have little strength, Lord. We're kind of just holding on by a thread, Lord. We're struggling, Lord. We're, we're battling, Lord. We're trying, Lord, but, but we're not seeing results, Lord. We're not seeing change. And this morning, Father, we need your strength. Help us, Lord. Give us the strength, Lord. Help us, help us, Lord, to change, Lord. Change us, Jesus. Help us with this sickness, Lord, that we're battling, Lord. Help us, Father, with work, Lord. Help us, Father, at home with our family, with our children, Lord, with our marriage, with our school. Father, God, I pray and ask in Jesus' name that you would impart strength, Lord. That you would give us strength, Lord, that, that we would live a life of victory, Lord. That you would remove, Lord, the struggle, the doubt. That you would re remove the weights, Lord, of our lives. And that you would give us strength, Lord. That we, Lord, can live with victory. And that we, Lord, can make the preparations for your return. We commit our lives into your hands. We commit our weak into your hands. And we pray that everything we do this week, everything we say, everything we think, everywhere we go, that it would be done for the glory of Jesus Christ. That the Lamb who was slain, that he would receive the reward of his sufferings through our life this week. We commit all these things to your hands, Lord. And as a family, 